0: The muso mental health podcast episode two today i'm chatting to adam Letman, who is the scousest person i know thank you darling <laughs> he is a composer an arranger and orchestrator a saxophonist which is how we met we met through playing with ian Browse, and he is currently studying for a phd in contemporary classical composition it's quite hard to say
1: you make me sound so fancy laura i love it i wish you could introduce me whenever i walk into a room it's great
0: I'm just going to walk in front of you from now on and actually announce your arrival into the room. So when we do the gig at Christmas, I'll do that. may bother. <laughs> no, you'll take the attention of me then, Laura. That ruins it. That's not the same. I'm sorry. Don't oh. so, do I need to hide somewhere? Yes, then? please. Yeah, please. No problem. How are you doing, Adam?
1: I'm great. I'm looking forward to this. I loved the first episode. Um, I quite like the honesty of it. I did. I enjoyed that. Um, I also like the fact that this is sort of to prepare musicians, up-and-coming musicians for what life's like which you definitely didn't have and i definitely didn't have so the only purpose to save is the benefit musicians and yeah let's do it
0: yeah it's it's going to be interesting to kind of contrast and compare because certainly for me i was i was prepared but in a in a very kind of bubbled situation in a conservatoire so i could see uh, my contemporaries and my teachers were going through or had been through when studying, but that was only one pocket of the music music industry. And I still don't feel like, I mean, it's definitely not the full picture at all. And I do think the conversations were more open. So would you mind just telling the listeners a bit more about your own musical journey? So what got you into music? Where you studied prior? Yeah, absolutely, Yeah,
1: yeah. So I got into music in actually a pretty daft way. Um, I was absolutely awful at everything at school, Um, useless. I was far too much of a dreamer. I just kind of would daydream quite a bit. Um, I I don't have an incredibly good attention span if I'm bored. I find people terribly boring and they can tell if I'm bored because I'll just be like, hmm, yeah, how many bricks could a sparrow carry up a wall? (laughs) I'll just start. Yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. So I got into music because my sister had a saxophone in the house. And I was like, yeah, that looks cool. That's shiny and gold. Like every middle-aged woman at any gig ever where there's a saxophonist, they're like, oh my God, it's shiny. He must be so good at that. So I took it to my school when I was 11 and I started to play. And it was the only thing that I ever talked to naturally. I was never good at sports. The only medal I have for sports is a netball tournament. And I was the only male on the team. I rocked it. I loved it. I felt like such a man. It was great.
0: Do you know what's really interesting, I'm already going to dive into something there, is that perception of masculinity. Did you find that because you were into music, as opposed to sports, that you were instantly pigeonholed as being gay when you were at school?
1: Um, so me for playing the sax, no. But interestingly enough, I had friends that played the flute, and they were ripped on for being, you know, quote, unquote, gay. Um, because. The flute is apparently a feminine instrument. Right. Which is just just bollocks. What why is why is an instrument masculine or feminine? Where does that come from? And it's like if you look at if you look at like 19th century um music forms, sonata is a feminine form. What? What how does that make any sense? Where does that come from?
0: I know, tell me about it. So this is something that um I've discussed with my husband quite a lot. So my husband and I are both violinists and I mean the amount of crap he took for being a non-sporty, musical, creative person, um, as, as a Scottish male as well, you know, and someone who's now in their mid-thirties. It's really interesting how we kind of look back on that now and see how far we've come as a country, as, um, as a way of actually breaking the stigma and stereotypes of stuff. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. This whole kind of Gender association with certain instruments is horrific, so it's pathetic but, but something I did have though in
1: school, which I, I don't know if you could relate to the music department was a safe haven if you weren't if you weren't sporty and you're on the yard or whatever, it was kind of like, oh you know what you know anything can kind of happen. The musicians in the music department were, were just like they didn't care you know there was there was I think that's where I met my first mate that was gay. And I remember that because if he would have said that anywhere else, he would have been like, no, I'm totally going to get beat up. Whereas in music, everyone was just like, yeah, why would, why would that matter? Which is lovely. That's beautiful. And it's because musicians naturally, I believe anyway, in fact, a mate of mine who's a psychologist, Josh Blackwell is researching this at the minute. Musicians are more open-minded. They're more accepting of new things. And and, and I, that's how I started music. I, a cheap saxophone from Costco was like 200 quid, something like that. Um, and it was the only thing I took to naturally in school, and I always found musicians to be like great crack as well, they were really funny, and they had long hair and I was like, I had a buzz cut until I was like 12. I remember I was being like, well, these guys are weird, they've got long hair. And then they were like, oh, hey man, like, do you want to you wanna jam and stuff, and I was like, yeah, obviously. And it was great. And, and from there on, I, th- I honestly think the music department in, in most schools is a safe haven for kids that aren't sporty. Because like you say, gender plays such a massive part in the world now, and it's it's better now than it's ever been. But even in schools, I feel like, I mean, from teaching in schools, it's still very much... For example, I've got a clarinet student, and he always makes me hide his clarinet, because if his mates see him, he'll get bullied for it.
0: Which is like, what? Why? Why? What? It's it's really interesting. I could, I could talk all day about this, because I work in a teaching job... Um in a part of scotland that is classed as an area of multiple deprivation and we use the orchestra as a social transformation tool and a way of boosting self-confidence self-esteem resilience all of these things but it's completely normal in that area now to see a child walking down the street carrying an oboe or a french horn like it's that diverse now it's not just you know the more common instruments that you would tend to find in um any kind of music teaching setting like it's it's now completely normal for even a four-year-old to know that when they get to primary two which in england is year one and they start thinking about their instrument choices oh yeah i'm going to play the viola and they know the difference between a violin and a viola which is nuts
1: (laughs) how does it feel though to be part of that change
0: oh incredible it's one of the reasons I've, i've i used to work for in harmony in liverpool which was, again, Sistema England and now I work for Sistema Scotland, so I've done it for a long time and I can't really imagine doing anything else.
1: But that's excellent, though. You you are already seeing in your lifetime an active change socially with children because of something that you've took part in. And that's amazing, Laura. That's that's like, that's class. Them kids are going to grow up, right? When we're well dead, we're going to be like, well dead. They're going to be like, oh, there's this woman, Laura, and she like, she taught me when I was a kid. and that's why I'm a musician now.
0: That's amazing. That's a change, man. That's cool. It's interesting how Legacy has such a, an impact on various different people. What was it, apart from kind of having the instrument at home, that then inspired you to continue as a musician?
1: Oh, there's so many like class quotes about this. A, a great teacher of mine, Phil Shotton, said the reason he became a musician was because he saw a man drink a pint on stage. Great quote, <laughs> fantastic quote, right? But the reason that I did it... I met my teacher in. I'm still tight with him now. He actually performed a couple of my compositions. He premiered them. Um, a fellow called Jerry Harrison, and he plays everything. He plays like oboe, sax, piano, organ, flutes, um, accordion. Plays everything. Crazy dude. And I remember him saying to me, "If you do a job you love, you won't work a day in your life." And also, I was because I mean I was brought up, you know, from speak, you know, working class you know, I went to, I was very fortunate. I got into a great school, but a lot of my friends didn't. And you know, our, you know, my mum and dad were bus drivers. A lot of my friends' dads were like tradesmen and things like that. And all you would, you would kind of hear growing up is, oh Christ, I've got to go to work or I can't wait to have two weeks off in the summer. And I remember as a kid thinking two weeks, what, like a year, mm-hmm. that's horrible. And this guy, Jerry, he, he used to tell me, all, he was like, oh yeah, I'm off to Dublin this weekend, I got a gig Um, you know, they pay for the hotel going to play, go for a couple of pints, and I was like, surely this is what life's got to be like. Because to me, I mean, you you probably agree with this, Laura, is that you want life to be life. You don't want to spend eight hours a day doing something you absolutely despise and you live for the weekend. That's not life. If you're spending the majority of your day doing something you don't enjoy, that's not living, that's existing. Yeah, I and Because you're here for such a short time, you, you have to you have to do something about that
0: love that absolutely love that so now that you are working professionally as a musician what would you say have been the kind of highest points for you as a musician and what have been the lowest points and i know that's quite a broad question but i'm sure we can kind of get into more detail. oh absolutely absolutely
1: um highest points right there's been there's been loads right one took a girl on a date and got recognized at a pub and was like oh my god you're in sweet beans and i was like well yes i am <laughs> and that was like okay okay one the girl's impressed obviously that's cool but two some dude some random dude that i don't know knows me and knows my music that's brilliant that's absolutely amazing and then you know being on stage is like a phenomenal feeling you live for it almost you live for it
0: you're some performer having actually shared a stage with you there is not a single atom of you that isn't involved in your (laughs) performance
1: A great, a, a, you know, a good friend of mine, Matt Lawton, double bassist. I remember we played on Lark Lane a couple of months back, and as I just stood next to him, he pulled his double bass away from me, and I was like, "What are you doing? Do I smell?" And he was like, "No, you tend to dance a lot when you play, so I'm just keeping safe." And I was like, "Oh man, fair play." There's been there's been loads of highs, Laura. Like with with Sweet Beans, I supported and so I watched you from afar, like a huge rock band, like an internationally renowned rock band that was amazing. But also not just about performing. There's an incredible satisfaction with music if it goes well. Where after a gig, people are just like you're a god, you know. Everyone is crowding you, and it's like I did this. Me and some some random dudes that I met have done something amazing, right? And like I remember the first autograph I ever signed was after Prowse's gig, the first one that I played, right? And she was like, "You were unbelievable. Can I please have your autograph and get a couple of pictures with you?" And I was like, "Me?" And She was like, "Yeah, you were on stage, right?" And I was like yeah but like are you sure and She was like yeah of course it th- I was like oh my god i couldn't believe it
0: that's so interesting i was talking to ronan on the first episode about that kind of attention versus um kind of that imposter syndrome type feeling and whether you thrive off it or whether you hate it and i'm one of these people that when i'm on stage if i've got my violin in my hand i feel like i've got a shield in my hand and there's a wedge between me and the audience
1: absolutely laura fantastic
0: when it comes out to like the merchandise or talking to people afterwards i get so embarrassed because i'm actually quite introverted um i'm one of these people that they class as an extroverted introvert i can put on the performance of being confident and outgoing when i need to be because mm. i feel like i've got the tools to be able to do that but when it comes to actually being laura without the without the instrument not the musician like i would (laughs) i would rather go and hide somewhere it's really it's really interesting i have to kind of psych myself up to go out and talk to people um is that something that you feel or
1: well it's it's kind of it's kind of a mix of two things really laura so much kind of the same as yourself i feel if i have an instrument i mean i don't I, i don't get nervous performing whatsoever i never have if i stand in front of a million people it doesn't bother me as long as i have a sax in my hand right Singers, I do not understand how anyone can do that. How you can stand and look at an audience and just be like, "Ah," that terrifies me. Because a sax, similar to a violin, is a barrier. That acts as a barrier. Maybe it's a psychological barrier, but it is a barrier of some form, some description, right? Mm -hmm. Singing to me is like the most honest thing that you could do and absolutely terrifying. I would never do it.
0: So how do you find you cope with that kind of energy after a gig? Because I hate it when, I have to kind of get up to the front to the merch desk and whatever. I find that quite intimidating. Do you thrive off of that kind of uh, buzz afterwards, or do you prefer to just kind of like hide backstage afterwards?
1: There's there's a couple of things with that actually that I was gonna I was gonna bring up. So if if I force myself, I am the the person in the room that will talk to you. I will speak to everyone because I'm on high and it's like yes, let's do it. Speak to everyone. This is immaculate. This is perfect. This is pure high. This is great. But that's only if I um, if I force myself to, then yeah, I can do it. Otherwise, I mean, if you speak to people that know me, I don't speak. I'm very sort of shy with new people. I don't really like it. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm antisocial, but I definitely have difficulty getting to know people. I'm sort of shy until I get to know you. But after a gig, I mean, you'll know yourself if it if it goes well, you feel euphoric. It feels great. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I was going to bring up actually later in this um, podcast was the come down. Now this is horrible, and it's only happened to me in the last two years, right? And I d- I don't know why. I don't know what started it. But if I do a massive gig on stage, I'm like, yeah, killing it, whatever. As soon as it finishes, it's like, oh god, this is reality. This is like, this is horrible. And after I mean it's happened it's happened a couple of times Laura, we're after a gig. I'll be like, right, I'm going home and everyone else is like, No, we're having drinks and like and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't want to be here. I I just wanna go home.
0: I find that I find that really interesting actually. Um I I get that quite a lot too. Um and sometimes it's just the sheer disappointment that it's over and that you've got a, a long time until you can look forward to the next one.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, that as well.
0: So that's that's part of it for me. But I'd love to know a bit more about what you think um causes that for you.
1: I've I've honestly no idea. I would love to know the last two years, since I've started doing sort of professional, really big gigs, um it's it's like a literal come down, Laura. You finish a gig and it's like, well th- there's no point in anything now. That you know, it's done. And everyone will be saying to me, you know, what well, why what are you in a mood for? You know, you are being miserable. And it's like, I'm not being miserable, I just I just can't help it. Something just doesn't feel right anymore.
0: Would you say that's one of the, the kind of negative sides that you've had? Because we were talking about the highest points that you've had since... Mm.
1: It's, it's certainly one of, but in terms of a career as a musician, as a sort of low and stuff, again, something I was going to say to later, Laura, but it's fine, the music education system. So when I was doing my undergrad, I was taught by a guy that was in the Royal Northern. He studied with Andy Scott, a very good sax player. But he was he was just horrible, and I rem- I hadn't had a a really like a professional teacher at that point. And I remember the first lesson with him, and I was like, "Oh, okay, what can I work on for next week?" And he was like, "Okay, have all the major scales learned, and have every mode in the major scale learned as well. So I want you to have everything from Ionian to Locrian learned in the keys of C, D, E, and F." And I was like, "No, wait, what?" No, I was like, well, "I can't do that." And he was like, "Well, why are you here then?" I was like, no, no, I'm here to learn sax, mate. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just didn't realize. And he's like, well, I went to a conservatoire, you should be able to do it. And I was like, wait, what? Why is this now an argument? And then a couple of weeks later, he told me my sax was awful and needed a new sax and the rest of it. So he drove me to Yorkshire, and on the way, he said, "What do you want to do with your life?" And I was like, "I want to be a composer and a performer." And he laughed at me, and I was like, "Why is that? Why is that funny?" And he's like, "Cause you didn't go to a conservatoire. That will never happen." He said, "What you should do, you should be a classroom teacher." And I was like, but, "But bear in mind, Laura, I was only eighteen. I didn't have a clue." And I was like, "Is that what I should do?" And he was like, "Yeah, man, you don't stand a chance." He was like, "You know, conservatoire level is something that is kind of unattainable unless you go to one." He was like, "Classroom teaching would probably suit you." And I, I, I in 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 minutes, my future was just decimated, and I was like, "Why? What?" Why am I at university then? Why did I get an unconditional offer? Why? What?
0: That's so common, unfortunately, for musicians of our generation to have the opinion of someone that you trust with your future and with your passion and with something that is essentially an extension of you and your personality and soul. And then that person takes that and puts their own issues into the mix it almost kind of palms them off on you, I mean you're not the first person, I've heard that from No, 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 absolutely, absolutely,
1: and and this this guy, he was like, how do you expect to make money as a composer? And I was just like 18, all fresh-faced and whatever, and I was like, I, I don't know, like like work hard, and he laughed, and he was like, you don't stand a chance mate, he was like, if, if you'd have gone to a conservatoire, I'd maybe say you could have a go. And, and all of a sudden I was just like, I don't want to do music anymore. And and for, for nine years or so, I had been like, well, maybe not nine years, maybe like seven years, I'd been set on being a musician and then overnight, I give it up. And I said to the lads that I knew, I was like, I'm going to become a psychologist because that was the highest grade I got A level was psychology. I was always really interested in it, I still am. And they were like, what? No, you're a sick player. Like, what? Why? And I was like, this dude who's like a professional said that I'm like no good and I'm not going to make anything. And it was horrible, and all of a sudden, my life was just like, "Oh Christ, right, what, what am I going to do now? I'm not good at anything else. How am I ever going to make money?" And then, uh, you know, a couple of couple of months later, he got sacked from the university, and I was like, so happy. And then I, I spoke to a, a a brilliant person in the department, Dan James, and she was like, "Don't give up. Keep going with it. You know, don't quit now." But for that to happen, Laura, at such a young age, it, sort of the beginning of my sort of musical career. just like this what is the point why am i even trying when someone who's better than me has already said i'm no good
0: it's such a valuable message for us now as the teachers absolutely laying the foundations for the next generation of musicians to be so mindful of how we speak to students because it's those throwaway comments and conversations that i'm sure if you were to go back to him now and say "Do do you actually realize what that did to me and my mental health he would probably have absolutely no idea because I wouldn't remember. Throw away to him. But to you, it means absolutely everything. And we've got such a responsibility now as as teachers, as mentors as well to kind of younger musicians that we might end up gigging with who then come up and see what we're doing to not be those negative influences and to not be so derogatory in our opinions of people. So, yeah, what a
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. And early on that that was hundred percent sort of detrimental to my, my career as a musician. I stopped practicing for like six or seven months because I was just so sort of decimated by what this guy had said. And I've often sort of wondered if I had of kept up with it in those seven or eight months, you know, how much better would I be now? Um but in terms of sort of highs and lows in a career, I would have to say the first big low was as soon as I started out was my mentor, someone I was supposed to sort of trust and, and who was supposed to support me. Being like, nah, mate, you're you're not really any good. And that it Laura it, it hurt. It was like getting sort of hit in the chest. It was awful. And then when he was sacked, I had a, a great teacher, Phil Shotton, fantastic, well known jazz musician in Liverpool, being like, mate, you've got so much potential. And I, I remember being like, well no, this dude said like I'm no good. And he was like, yeah, ignore him. Don't worry about it. It's
0: the baggage you carry around from that though that sticks. It's it's really hard, isn't it? It gets through. Yeah. It. And when you've not developed that kind of um maturity as a musician, you still feel like you're learning and like you say you've got all this enthusiasm. Mm. That kind of stuff stays inside. No, it's horrible. The think... criticism is just it's it's really brutal. No,
1: it's it's awful. And actually, Laura, what I was gonna ask you in relation to all this was do you Could you say honestly that your career in music was in any way supported by your studies at university? Now what I mean by that is, did university prepare you to be a musician or did it prepare you to play scales and pieces?
0: So there's two answers to that. My violin teacher, I had a wonderful violin teacher from the age of 14, up until when I graduated, uh, when I was 21. and she prepared me for real life on the outside as a musician. She taught me to love music as a whole and didn't kind of subscribe to all the, the politics that went on in the music industry to the point whereby she recognized that I needed protecting from all the kind of toxic bubble game playing kind of thing that can go on in a conservatoire and particularly the conservatoire I was at was very small so we were in each other's face all the time you know and human beings aren't meant to be like that it was a little bit big brother yeah so I would have violin lessons at her house and they would normally be at the weekend as well where we could just take our time they were meant to last for an hour and a half and she would always give me a good couple of hours and we'd just take our time
1: that's beautiful that's a beautiful memory
0: in terms of her she did prepare me and i had support from other teachers whilst i was at the conservatoire who were very valuable um but then actually the the conservatoire experience for me as a whole at that point um no it didn't prepare me for going out into the industry it was like i say that kind of very kind of bubbled um closed off environment whereby only certain types of music mattered and only certain types of jobs within the music industry mattered and if you didn't get those jobs and you weren't on trial with the orchestras and you weren't freelancing with this person and this person and this person or this group or this group you were a failure bottom line you were you were you weren't even worth listening to and unfortunately our our kind of person in charge at the time who was responsible for that well-being element with us really did fail us at the time. Uh, and even now I feel quite frightened saying that which goes to show that even so I graduated 13 years ago yesterday, it's still there. <laughs> so yeah, I hope that answers the question, but it's, um, it's just fascinating how much of an impact the people that we trust in our music education can have such a positive impact, but also such a damaging impact.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And something I took away from that is that students that I have now, I take them to gigs nice. and I'm like, right, I'm on for two hours for the last song, you're getting up. You are gonna jam, this is the scale, these are the chords, then you go, that's it. And they're like, oh, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And every time they do it, they come off. A couple of times they'll cry and they'll be like, I can't believe I did it and it's like, that's what this is about. That's good. I've done my job. I've taught you enough so that you're now prepared to go. I'm not going to hold your hand anymore. You're now ready. And that is, that's, that's being a teacher. It's not making a kid feel terrible for not practicing one week. Then they're just not going to practice anymore because they're going to be like, oh, well, you know, what's the point? It's horrible.
0: It's shaping the whole musician as well. It's not just about, like you say, the scales or the rudiments or whatever. It's actually shaping the entire individual into a musician. Um, so, you know, there's all of the the oral training that goes with that and identifying what learner type they are, because we're all such diverse people, so some people <laughs> learn better visually. And that, that's only a new thing as well, Laura.
1: That, yeah, you're right.
0: Totally. That's just fascinating to listen to. Um, I would be really interested to know what it is that um, inspired you to go and study a PhD or for a PhD, I should say.
1: Um, A couple of, well, a couple of things, a, a good friend of mine, Stephen Pratt, or, well, I should say Professor Stephen Pratt, you know, you, you'll have a go with me for that. He was a massive inspiration in me becoming a composer and he was a lecturer that, you know, I've been out for drinks with and he would just sit and he would just talk honestly and he would be like, it's going to be a tough road, I'm not going to lie, like, music's not easy. But if you stick at it, it will happen. I don't know, the, the honesty in that is beautiful to me. Um. And the thing that inspired me to do a PhD, there's a gap in the research with contemporary classical music featuring traditional Irish instruments. So things like the pipes, tin whistle, Irish flute, all the rest of it. Because they're mostly diatonic instruments, they haven't really been accepted into the wider use of contemporary classical music. There's a few exceptions, um, Ryan Malloy, Kevin Rowlands, things like that. But my, the sort of aim of my PhD is to expand the repertoire massively using contemporary classical techniques such as like fractal based composition, extended techniques, so on, so on. I don't want to bore anyone. But my, my sort of goal at the end of the PhD would be I'm now ready to teach people to one, a level of knowledge, which I'm comfortable with, two, a level of experience in life, the more important part that I can confidently say to someone, look, this is what you need to do to be a successful musician. Because the only lecture that I ever had, and I believe this is in the entirety of my career in education, right? The one lecture that I ever had that helped me, it was about half an hour. And this guy came in, he was going to be my teacher, Phil Shotton, right? Didn't really know him at the time. And he said, have you got a notebook? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, what I'm going to say, write it down. He said, I've got five things to say. One, get an accountant. Be friendly with your accountant. Two, your face is everything. Be friendly to everyone that you meet at gigs. They will remember you. Three, reputation is everything. Reputation is essential in music. One bad review, you don't get gigs anymore. Mm-hmm. Turn up on time, practice, and always be polite. Four, chase up payment. Know your own self worth. Don't do things for exposure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the fifth thing that he said, which I was actually like really surprised by, it was just smile. I was kind of like, you know, what, what does that mean? And he was like, well. Even if you feel sad, try and smile because it'll sort of trick your brain into feeling a bit better. But another thing is, if you're at a gig and, you know, you're trying to get to know people and all that and you're being polite and you're smiling at everyone, they're going to remember you. Because one, you're not just sat there bored, listening along. Two, you look keen and you're interested. And three, it makes a difference to someone's day by just being nice to them.
0: Absolutely. What interests me about that is the emotional toll that that can take on somebody, though. To Absolutely. Put on that performance, about always appearing happy, because I know that's something that many, many musicians feel. I've already touched on it in other conversations with other musicians.
1: I think female musicians in particular would struggle with that, because the, I mean I've heard that at gigs before where you know obviously hecklers are just the stupidest people in the world. Will shout, "What's up with your smile?" If it's a girl and she's doing a sad song, I was like, sorry, who, one, who are you? And two, don't ever say that again. What is wrong with you? And I think with women as well, it, it, I mean, you could disagree with this actually, Laura, but the pressure to look perfect at every gig, right? I turn off the gigs. All I do is comb my hair and put some aftershave on. That's it. I'm done. Seconds. But I mean, I know, I know from, from gigging with yourself and, and Fiona, at Prowse's gig, you, you know, you put the makeup on, you do your hair beautifully. You know, you guys look fantastic. Now, is that a choice? Or do you feel you have to?
0: That's really interesting. I've had long conversations with some of the other band members about this, in particular Chris Howard. Um, It's a choice now. It's a choice now because I am comfortable enough in myself to know that if I can't be bothered with a certain part of any of that, I just won't do it because this is who I am. This is what I look like. In the past, it's felt like an absolute necessity. And I mean, certainly when I've been booked for gigs uh, with certain orchestras, you get sent through the dress code. And for women, it has been very specific, like down to the color of tights that you're wearing. And if you don't wear tights, you're going to get into trouble. doesn't matter if it's like 24 degrees outside and you're absolutely boiling. Um, You can't have bare arms or bare shoulders. And i have actually in my early days of freelancing one of the big professional orchestras that i was working with at the interval the principal second violin actually hauled me off stage and said the dress you're wearing is inappropriate it shows your ankles when you're sitting down get that changed for tomorrow or you won't be coming back and i sat on the bus home despicable. it was a it was a gig up north um so we were, we were traveling back on the coach and I sat and cried the whole way home and thought that my career was over because of that one thing. And I legged it home the next day, I got a different dress. um, And bearing in mind, we're sat down when we're playing and I was wearing tights. So, you know, it was my ankles that were on show when I was sitting down, my ankles that were covered in tights. Absolutely ridiculous. But the, the thing that's absolutely floored me since, and I can see the ridiculous of it now, but I was 21 at the time. I haven't actually been asked back to play with that professional orchestra since then (laughs) can you believe that
1: (laughs) honestly no i think that's that's such an archaic way of thinking that to show ankles or shoulders is in some way what sexual is that is that the idea
0: that or offensive um they would actually get audience members apparently that would write in and complain about the way that you looked on stage when you were playing as part of an orchestra
1: Oh, see, that, Oh, this is the difference with classical and jazz, right? If someone dared to do that, I'd be like, all right, get up and play then. That is pathetic. The fact that, right, okay, women are objectified enough for the rest of that. What, why does the way you look, particularly showing ankle or shoulder, in any way affect the sound that the violin makes is my question.
0: I mean, we know the answer to that. It makes absolutely no difference. But absolutely pathetic. To that kind of appearance thing about how you look, and how you're portrayed to be on stage. You know, if everybody in the audience was to stand there and shut their eyes and just focus on the music, we could all be standing there playing in our pajamas and it wouldn't matter, but appearance is actually part of an awful lot of this as well. I know you've spoken to me uh, before about issues with appearance and all this kind of thing. What impact has the music industry had on you and your mental health in that regard?
1: Um, Well, in terms of appearance, I, I think you mean anorexia. So in relation to that, So, when I did a performance when I was an undergrad, have you heard of Alberto Sanna? Yes. He taught me, fantastic violinist, amazing violinist, but he would teach performance. Now, performance to, to people who listen that aren't musicians isn't how to play an instrument, it's how to stand, it's how to present yourself, it's how to breathe. And I I remember he would say, you know, you would you sit with your, your chest out, your shoulders back, legs like slightly apart, all the rest of it. And that's all perfectly correct. You know, he, he's accurate, he was a great teacher. But the only thing that I could think was, um people can see my hips. And he was like, take take your jacket off, why you wear a jacket? And I was like, Yeah, fair enough. I'll I'll take it off. And then I was like, Oh god, wait, no, people can see like my body now. This is bad. And that was kind of the start of it, in terms of impacting it in music. But something that, you know, uh, something I, I definitely struggle with anorexia is that when I was, oh, I got down to eight stone when I was 19, I would hook my thumb under my ribs. And if I could feel my lungs, I knew that I was skinny enough. And that I was like, oh yeah, he looks great. And And you know, now I know that's unhealthy. But then I remember seeing a picture of me at a gig and My t-shirt, oh sorry, my shirt, my black shirt was straight, perfectly straight, and then came out slightly, probably a millimeter or two millimeters, and I was like, "Yeah, you need to eat less. That's bad. That looks bad on photos." And then it would get it would get worse when um, it was like a particularly big gig because if there was like photographers, I would be like, "Oh God, right, I need to wear something that like hides anything." And at this time, you know, my sister had said to me, she was like, "You look gone. You look like you're gonna die." And I was like, yes, I look great, don't I? She was like, You look like you're gonna die. But to me, that was a compliment. And I thought, right, well, I'm on stage. People are gonna be like, oh, he looks so good. But that's that's the sort of tricky thing with mental health and music. And you know, the aim of this podcast is to like educate people with the two subjects. And something that I would say is it will impact your mental health. I'm I'm not one to lie. I mean, you know, you know that I am incredibly honest, right? music if you are going to become a musician prepare to have your mental health tested genuinely i mean that from from experience from the bottom of my heart and from a place of a teacher of a mentor that people will judge your appearance people will mentally criticize you and it's difficult
0: kind of building that support network up now i think that's where the change needs to happen and i think that's where we have the power to make the biggest difference not only with kind of talking about it here but talking about things like this openly with our students because yeah I mean it it doesn't matter whether you're just playing on a stage um on a smaller scale or whether you're playing to millions of people that are always going to be folks that judge that are always going to be people that pass thoughtless comments and it's our job to educate people into being more mindful about the fact that musicians are actually still just human beings it's the differences is, is that we're choosing to share our but actually we are still just human beings we all come into the world in the same way and we all go out the same way nobody has any more right than you would turning it around on stage and pointing somebody out in the middle of the audience
1: but but that happens though and and speaking from from you know a, a gigging musician as well as a, as a composer right gigs people will say stuff you will get heckled right now every time you're gonna want to get off stage and like beat the living shit out of them but all you got to do say nothing just, you know, stay calm because someone will say something to them eventually, right? Now, going back to what you said about a low point in your music career, right? I went to a pretty prestigious university for my master's. I had to do a presentation on the orchestration, Stravinsky's orchestration, the Firebird, right? Um, I did, I think I did four minutes, right? And the lecturer interrupted the, the meeting and he said, I'd like to apologize to anyone that can't understand Adam. He is Scouse. Two things, two things with that, right? Why bring that up when no one has said? Could you speak clearer? And also, right? I would expect that at a pub gig, I would expect someone. You know, if I was gigging in like Leeds or down south, someone would be like, you know, say chicken and a can of coke or something like that. But from an academic, that that was crap. That was like, wow, okay, this is bad. So I don't think I don't think um, feedback or, or Heckland comes just from gigs. No, I think in a, in a professional academic sense as well it can happen.
0: That's that's quite incredible. I mean, I have to say I can understand you fine. And I mean, I'm hoping you can understand my Scottish tones fine. So, you know, some people try to be funny with, with their remarks and actually they forget that sometimes, you know, it actually hits a sore point. So if you've, goes back to that old adage of if you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything.
1: Exactly. I've only ever noticed it, though, with either people from Scotland, Ireland or the north of England. It's very rare that you'll hear someone say to a southerner, I can't understand you or, you know, your
0: accent off-putting or whatever. So just kind of bringing the the episode to a close, um, what advice would you give to somebody that actually wants to start out in the music industry? I know we've touched on that briefly about kind of preparing yourself for criticism but is there any kind of other advice that you would give to somebody starting out who's thinking or who's had the negative experiences like we've described today, what would your advice be to them?
1: Oh God. Oh, okay. Loads. So I've been sort of working as a professional musician now, full time for two years. Prior to that, I would work hospitality jobs as well, right? You are not going to be a musician overnight. You will not be a full-time musician. Don't, I thought that, don't think that was wrong. It's going to take a few years. But you will get there, you will absolutely get there. Another part of advice, right? Go to gigs. Not enough people go to gigs. That's how you get gigs. Meet people. Speak to people who are just as weird as you. That's how you make friends. It's great. You meet people that are mental. I met one of my best mates at uni, all, and he's like the entire opposite of me. He's like this gorgeous Northern Irish lad who's, who's so polite to everyone and I'm awful. And that's how you meet people opposite the track, get out and see people, right? Another thing is, when it gets hard, and musicians, you know, go to gigs, right, and the other thing is, when, and this is a proper Facebook mum thing to say, this is like sharing minions memes, oh my god, I can't believe I'm saying it, right, when it gets bad, when the criticism's bad, when there's no gigs, when you're poor, when you want to give up, all the rest of it, right, put some headphones on, put some headphones on, and listen to what made you do what you're doing, that is why you're where you are, because you've heard a track and you've been like, oh, my God, I want to do that. Or you've met someone and be like, I want to be like them. Do not give up with that. Keep going. Too many people, you will definitely know this, right? Too many people that you teach will get to, like, grade five or they'll do the grade eight and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be an accountant now. What? Your boss, what are you doing? Are you mad? You're amazing. Keep going with it.
0: If that's, if that's where your true passion lies and you want to do it, absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah, it's, it's crazy. and I've had as well, you know, kids say, my parents don't want me to do it. Well, sorry, but your parents aren't you. Do what you want to do. Live your own life. It's great. Honestly, it's great. Doing a job that you love is the best thing in the world. I have never hated going to work, never.
0: That's, uh, I think that's the absolute best piece of advice. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing everything so honestly. And uh, let us know how you get on with the PhD. I can't wait to hear more about it. Oh, he fled.